So today we're having a discussion with uh, Dr. Binus and myself about insomnia. So Dr. Binus, uh, as we are mental health professionals, I think some people might be a little bit confused as to why we're talking specifically about insomnia. Could you give us a little insight on that? Absolutely. One of the biggest causes and problems that I see frequently in my practice with patients is a difficulty with sleep. And we know that sleep is key for optimizing mental function. And so when we're talking about insomnia, of course, um, we should probably define that. And so insomnia really has to do with difficulty either initiating sleep or maintaining sleep. And for people that truly have insomnia, that's going to occur more than three times per week, generally speaking. Is there a certain type of uh, frame in terms of like duration that we're looking for before we are willing to make that diagnosis? Well, you know, there, it's definitely possible that people can have sleep problems here or there, and that's relatively common. But to really have insomnia, for most people, we'd be looking at more than one month ongoing problem. Okay. Um, and in terms of, uh, in terms of some of the negative effects that insomnia causes, I know most of our, most of our, uh, listeners have probably had at least some short episodes of insomnia at, from time to time and know some of the, those causes, uh, or some of those negative effects of the sleep deprivation. But can we walk through some of, of the things that you most commonly see with your patients? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, a lot of people come to me complaining of memory problems and, they they often say, oh, doc, I think I'm getting Alzheimer's. And they're like yeah. 40 years old. And I'm like, well, you know, at 40 <laughs> years old, you're probably not getting Alzheimer's disease. But uh, memory issues actually can be one of the most common problems uh, with with sleep. I don't know if you see that with your patients as well. And of course, chronic stress. And interestingly enough, you know, chronic stress and insomnia actually often go hand in hand. So that's one of the big effects. And, and, and when you, when you think about stress, actually, since I'm kind of on that topic too, um, what happens with when, when you're stressed is that that can worsen your sleep, which in turn, you know, like we said, worsens memory. And then also when you're not sleeping, that of course, worsens your stress. So then it becomes this vicious cycle that can sometimes be hard to break. Yeah, a little bit of that feedback loop. Another thing that I would say, uh, poor concentration. And, and this gets a little bit uh, tricky sometimes with ADHD patients because maybe they have insomnia primarily. And then uh, so the sleep deprivation is causing some poor concentration. And then they, maybe they've got a bad diet on top of that. And so that gives them a little bit more brain fog. And now they're unable to concentrate at work. And so they come to me saying, hey, doc, I think maybe I have uh, ADHD, but in reality, it's actually just a, maybe a sleep underlying issue. And, and we also see those things with obviously anxiety, as you said, depression. Sometimes that can be sort of the root cause. And then these sort of secondary diagnoses can, can really come um, from that. What are, some other, what are some other issues that you see with sleep, sleep deprived patients? Yeah, just kind of piggybacking on what you're saying with the concentration issues. Uh, it's, it's interesting there because really what we see with sleep deprivation and especially chronic sleep deprivation is there's a frontal lobe impairment that actually takes place. And the frontal lobe is where we do our analytical thinking. It helps um, us focus and that sort of thing. And so if you're not sleeping sufficiently, that part of the brain is actually not going to work properly. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because that can even then affect creativity mm. and even moral judgment. 
because the frontal lobe is, it's not just focus, but it's also has to do with our decisions. It has to do also with being creative and trying new things, that sort of thing. And, and, um, and self-control and really when, so all those things go hand in hand. Um, by the way, it's, it's kind of interesting when we, we think about what sleep actually does to, to the brain, because in, in my mind, it's really a lot about restoration. And I mean, I guess that's where the word rest <laughs> is even in restoration, right? So it, it really resets our brain. It allows us to have the functional ability to reboot and to think clearly again the next day. And uh, part of that um, actually occurs through a process that uh, some, some people call uh, deep brain uh, cleaning or brain cleaning. And I have, have you read on that? At I have, all? I've read uh, a little bit on that. And, uh, I actually, I had a patient just recently that we were talking about this exact topic and how it seemed as if she wasn't getting that, that deep sleep. And so most likely, you know, some of that toxic buildup that sort of occurs throughout the day, you get that extra, uh, oxidation, right. And the brain is not able to, to adequately dispose of that throughout the night because you're not getting your, you know, the, the cycles that you should be getting throughout the night. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty fascinating because it, it, it's almost like because your your brain there's a blood brain barrier right where the blood the circulation actually and and the brain parenchyma or the brain cells are actually separate but during sleep it, it's not that that barrier doesn't completely break down but you you get this efflux from the blood vessels uh, and, and essentially this this fluid that goes throughout the brain mm -hmm. and really cleans the space between the brain cells and cleans up all this uh, toxic waste. And I think that's probably a big part of what actually makes the brain then function better the next day because it doesn't have all this extra junk sure. <laughs> going, you know, that's interfering with neurotransmission, you know, brain cells talking to each other and that sort of thing. And also, of course, the, the brain cells themselves get a little chance to, to rest and, you know, the inside of the brain cells, the there needs to be upkeep in the cytoplasm and that sort of thing. So the brain cells get to to recharge during that time and and just reset uh, for for the next day. You know, one thing I was thinking about too, with memory, um, I think our listeners might be interested, like why why sleep really affects memory. I don't have. Do you have any thoughts on that at all? Not not really, but I'd I'd love to hear what you. Yeah. So one of the the interesting things. So during the day when you actually uh, process or, or receive new information, what happens is that information initially gets processed by the hippocampus. And that's a part of the, the brain. It's closely tied in with the emotional limbic system. And as that part of the brain is processing uh, the information, it kind of holds it there. And it really needs needs you to sleep in order for that to be fully processed. And then the hippocampus actually sends the memories for storage into the cerebral cortex, which is uh, actually the outer part of, of the brain. And that that whole process actually does not occur normally unless you're, you're sleeping well. And uh, there's certain parts of sleep that are particularly important uh, for attention, concentration, and also for that memory storage. Um, stage three, four sleep, which is your deep sleep, and then uh, the the REM sleep are are 
both uh, key players for uh, both the attention and concentration and also the memory aspect. So essentially, if you're not getting adequate sleep, your ability to convert your new information into from short term to long term is, is severely impacted. Absolutely. Yeah. And there were there were actually uh, studies that have been done that show that that if someone's trying to learn a new skill, for example, they actually need a full sleep cycle, including the REM. So they need seven, eight hours really to be able to step up and and actually learn that new skill and be able to apply it. So it kind of makes sense why some of our patients that are struggling with sleep, we send them to psychotherapy and we're wanting them to know all these new t uh, techniques. <laughs> it can be very difficult for them because a lot of that just isn't getting processed in the way that it should otherwise. Absolutely. Do. And that's one of the reasons for me as a, as a psychiatrist, as I'm treating my patients, I'm always thinking that, you know, if any, if there's one thing I want to try to dial in with someone in order to actually really make progress with their mental health, we got to get them some sleep. I mean, if they're not sleeping, you know, generally speaking, I think like, okay, most, most mental disorders, um, you got to have like depression, for example, usually there's several factors that play a role. I think, so for example, they, they might have, um, a problem with addiction, they might have a problem with negative thoughts, with uh, major stress in their life. Insomnia, though, it is the, the one factor that by itself, if, if they only have insomnia, it could contribute to a major mental health disorder like depression. And so, again, if we don't sleep, fix sleep, then we're really not going to make any progress with someone's mental health. And that's one of the reasons I think this topic is so important. So there are a couple other uh, things that we wanted to touch on in terms of some of the negative effects of sleep deprivation, and we'll go through these relatively quickly, but there can definitely be, as we've alluded to, mood changes and increased irritability. Uh, there can also be weakened immunity, and obviously during uh, the, the, the times that we live in, that can be um, somewhat concerning. So it can, it can put you at further risks of uh, other medical issues like heart disease, diabetes, and so on. And uh, the last thing that we'll touch on is the impaired motor control and reflexes. And I was wondering if you've ever heard, uh, there's a study uh, that I was looking into, and it talked about uh, no sleep versus, uh, you know, sort of a traditional type of uh, insomnia where you're maybe only getting one or two less sleep cycles per night. And a lot of people think like, oh, I'm fine. I can I can get by off of five hours, right? That's that's what my body's used to. I'm I'm doing okay. That's what I hear a lot. And and this study actually p uh, compared a single night of zero sleep. Uh, versus somebody that got maybe one to two weeks of an hour and a half. So one sleep cycle less than your traditional seven to eight hours, right? So let's say they were getting six to six and a half hours per night. Their motor control when driving was essentially the same after a week of that, you know, one cycle less than somebody that went a full, you know, uh, night without any sleep. So there's definitely impairment is essentially is, is the point that I'm trying to make. And if you're consistently only getting five, six hours, right, you may feel okay, but there's definitely some damage that's being done. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really interesting study. And I, and I could see how that would be true because over time, even if you're just getting, like you said, maybe an hour or two hours less than you would ideally like, it does really add up. And a lot of Americans are chronically sleep deprived and there's, there's real, you know, reasons for that, um, beyond even some of the, the issues that we've already discussed. You know, one of the things that I think is really contributing in a, in a big way to people getting overall less sleep is that there's so much stress mm. in in our society and and I don't know about you but if I if I have a lot on my mind and I'm just stressed out 
it's hard for me to really shut my brain down. Absolutely. And so I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. It sounds like you've probably experienced that personally, but also seen that with your patients. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, well, I think this is a great transition into some of the causes of insomnia. And so let's let's talk about uh, specifically some of the mental health uh, causes of insomnia. So, you know, depression is obviously a big thing. Um, anxiety, as we've touched upon, you know, other mental health disorders like PTSD, substance abuse, those things can obviously be huge as well. But aside from sort of mental health disorders, what are some other what are some other causes of, uh, of, of insomnia that we that we need to look out for? Absolutely. So like I said, I think stress, especially in the society we live in nowadays, a lot of us are just almost in that fight or flight perpetually. And so I think that finding some way to kind of calm the, the stress and is, is, is critical. And um, we'll touch a little bit on that, I think, later on as far as some of the solutions. Uh, but it's also important to really think about what are the stressful things in my life and kind of how can I mitigate those and minimize those? Um, another, another thing that I think people are often not aware of that can really trigger insomnia is, is what are we ingesting day to day? And that can be everything from the types of food that we're eating to um, what we're drinking and then also the medications that we're, we're utilizing or even supplements. And I think those are all um, important factors. And um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts and experience on that too. So if we're talking about medications, now this is a long list and something that uh, all of you listeners, if you have a concern for, you definitely want to talk about with your doctor. But from a mental health standpoint, there are certain medications that are known to, uh, in some people, trigger insomnia. These can be things like ADHD medications, even certain antidepressants or antipsychotics. Thyroid medication can also cause some, uh, some problems in some people. Um, but aside from medications, some of the other stuff that people do ingest on a regular basis, I think it's, it's important. Um, and I should say uh, there's there's definitely with some of these a lot of people are using so this is not just a rare problem but caffeine is a big one so let's talk for a second about about caffeine what are your you know what do you typically coach insomniacs or patients with insomnia uh, about caffeine specifically well generally speaking I tell people that if you're gonna have caffeine which I actually discourage people in general from having caffeine because there's other negative mental health implications, not just insomnia from caffeine. But if you're going to have any caffeine, then definitely not after noon because uh, and, and some people do metabolize caffeine quicker or more slowly than others. Uh, one of the things that I think is really important pe for people to understand is that as you get older, your caffeine metabolism goes down significantly. In other words, you metabolize the caffeine more slowly. So let's say you're 60, 70 years old, the caffeine that you drank in the morning could potentially still be in your system, at least on some level, even at night. And that caffeine significantly impairs melatonin. And melatonin is very important for uh, actually giving you a good night's sleep. It's what make, makes you feel drowsy. It's actually what um, give, gets you into the deeper stages of sleep so that you can experience that more restorative sleep. And so, like I said, any amount of caffeine, not, not great, but especially, you know, anything in the afternoon. And as you get older, you really can't tolerate even sometimes the morning doses of caffeine. 
So for some of you that have heard of the term half-life, basically what it means is uh, the the amount of time that 50% of the whatever it is is being metabolized by your body. So with caffeine specifically, the average is around five hours. And I think this is sort of an important point to think. So let's say you drink an energy drink and that energy drink has around 200 milligrams of caffeine right five hours later there's still 100 milligrams of that caffeine in your system right another five hours later so that's 10 hours after you drank that original energy drink uh, there's still 50 milligrams of caffeine which is essentially a half a cup of coffee so let's say you're drinking that around noon you're trying to go to bed around 10 you've got a half half of a cup of coffee still floating around in your system i think most people are going to would recognize that that is uh, going to impair your sleep probably to some degree yeah and it's really interesting to hear you break it down like that because when you when you do that it's like wow yeah actually there's still a bunch of caffeine floating around in my system now I've talked to a lot of people that say you know what I can drink a cup of coffee and go right to sleep and and so the, then you wonder like okay well what's going on there is that is it not impairing melatonin secretion and in reality I think that those people are so chronically worn out and sleep deprived yeah. Uh, that they their body just it instantaneously sleeps when it gets the chance to sleep i don't think it's that caffeine is not affecting them i think it still is impacting the melatonin secretion so even though they're going to sleep their sleep is not as restorative and and positive as it would be you know without the caffeine but yeah unfortunately over time your body does build a tolerance to caffeine but that doesn't mean necessarily the tolerance is to what we might call the positive stimulant effects, but the tolerance is not necessarily to the negative effects of caffeine. True. Uh, let's talk about a second substance that a lot of people drink, alcohol. Uh, can you give us some feedback on how alcohol affects sleep? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of people actually like to drink alcohol to help them fall asleep. A nightcap. <laughs> right. right. Uh, they, they feel like, you know, it helps me relax. It helps me uh, wind down. And but the truth of the matter is that it actually worsens sleep quality. One of the ways that it does that is it really reduces the deep uh, wave sleep, which is the most restorative um, and probably argumentatively maybe uh, or arguably maybe the, the most important part of the sleep cycle, which is stage three, four sleep. And so when you drink alcohol, you're getting much less of that. And that, of course, can, and then the other, other piece of that, too, is is when the alcohol wears off or it starts to wear off after several hours, people will then start to actually wake up and they will not be sleeping nearly as soundly later on in the night too. So it really makes for a horrible night's sleep even if you think that you're getting some decent sleep. And then the third thing about it, it, it acts as a diuretic, right? So That's true. it wakes you up frequently, not only because of that sort of rebound energy that you get from drinking alcohol, but also because it's gonna make you need to go to the bathroom quite often. And if you're sort of already awake when you wake up, it's gonna be really difficult to go back to sleep. So while it seems to be effective for those first couple hours for most people, long-term it's a, it's a terrible strategy. Uh, and then the last, last uh, substance we'll, we'll talk about real quick is nicotine. You know, a lot of a lot of my patients do smoke, right? And they a lot of them feel like it helps them with their anxiety. And sometimes anxiety is the cause of why maybe they're having insomnia. So, you know, how do we how do we sort of balance that and and coach people that hey, nicotine isn't isn't a good long term solution? Yeah, I, I think it's important for people just to understand that it does impact uh, sleep significantly. Um, it also can can reduce that uh, deeper sleep, and um, I believe also even the affects REM on some levels as well. It reduces the 
the REM, the amount of REM sleep, which is part of the sleep cycle that's also uh, very important. And so, uh, and of course, when you're smoking, that's going to uh, also make it, your lungs are gonna be worse. You're not gonna get the oxygenation that your tissues, uh, your brain and the rest of your body needs as well. And if you're using any illicit drugs, I don't think it's, I think it's fairly obvious that those things can definitely impact sleep. So we want to stay away from that as well. Yeah. And on that note, I think people often do use even cannabis for sleep, but that also can worsen sleep quality. One of the things that I've, I've often seen with patients is it seems like a lot of times when they quit cannabis, there's what we call an REM rebound. And so uh, it does seem that cannabis actually does suppress REM sleep as well, even though, again, it, it, it can knock people out. It doesn't really give people the quality of sleep that's truly restorative uh, for the next day. Um, what are some other causes aside from medications, mental health disorders, and uh, you know substances? What are some other causes that we can uh, contribute to uh, insomnia? Well, one of the most common things uh, that I see from a medical standpoint is actually sleep apnea, especially because a lot of people are struggling with weight problems, and even some people that don't have weight problems uh, due to the anatomy of their throat and their mouth, uh, they can have problems with sleep apnea, which what is sleep apnea? Well, basically sleep apnea has to do with stopping breathing when you're sleeping. And people usually snore when they have sleep apnea, not hundred percent, but most people that have sleep apnea do snore. And basically what happens is uh, their throat shuts down and uh, they just stop breathing. And then their brain doesn't get good oxygenation during sleep and that can contribute to memory and other issues. Uh, A lot of times people do wake up when they are gasping for air and not getting enough oxygen. Sometimes they're still asleep enough that they think they're sleeping through the night, but their quality of sleep is horrible. And one of the things that we often tell people if there's, you know, if they're feeling, if they're sleeping, you know, a certain amount of hours, let's say six, seven hours or yeah, seven, eight, and maybe even longer, like enough hours but they feel like their quality of sleep is horrible and they're tired all day long, that could actually be a major sign that they have sleep apnea and they should get a sleep study. No, definitely. I, I, I see that a lot uh, and are frequently having to refer refer patients uh, to get that uh, a further sleep study done. But some other things that I see fairly frequently, things like chronic pain, restless legs, even gastric reflux. You know, if you're getting a lot of that burning in the back of the throat, that can be very annoying and can keep you up at night. Absolutely. Um, some of the other sort of poor, we want to dive into sleep hygiene a little bit. And some of the, the stuff that we see that can also cause insomnia is poor sleep hygiene. So this can be, you know, eating late at night. Uh, this can be uh, exposing yourself to excessive amount of light, specifically uh, artificial light coming from screens, right? That's really important. And then doing other things like really mentally stimulating activities before before bed. Things like video games, obviously because of the screen, but you know, th- those things can be very, very activating for the brain as well. Certain books, obviously, if you're getting really involved in this book before you go to bed, that's just going to uh, wake you up and get you excited and, and going to make it difficult to go to bed. Uh, you know, if you're not exercising throughout the day, that's a, that's another really big one. Um, so any, any other points you'd like to touch on with that? Well, I just think it's so important when we think about sleep hygiene, uh, you know, so many people use media shortly before bed, whether it's uh, on your phone or TV or computer and all of those generally emit blue light and blue light really makes your brain 
wake up and it suppresses melatonin secretion, which melatonin is so important for putting us to sleep and keeping us asleep. And so it's, it's really important that people shut down their devices, ideally two or three hours actually before they are trying to go to sleep. And if you have to use devices uh, before during that time, then trying to either use blue blocking glasses or at least putting on your blue light filter on your device to really try to filter out any of that blue light that can help. But even there, you have to be really careful because you know, our devices are stimulated. They're meant to be stimulating, grab our attention, and that can really impair sleep. So I'll, I'll use my own personal example for this, but uh, here's some things I do in order to mitigate those problematic effects. Cause a lot of times I do find myself needing to be on my computer late at night. So uh, usually when the sun goes down, I put on my blue, blue locking glasses and I use the amber based one. So they, they block about, I think it's like 95 to 99% of, of the blue light. And then on my screen, I'm actually using uh, filters and I use actually two different filters to enhance the, that that. Uh, the last uh, sort of concept that I, I, I don't know if you've ever heard this particular phrase, but uh, a digital sunset. So mm. I, I just, I love that phrase, you know, and because it sort of creates that, that idea of, you know, when the sun goes down, you know, a lot of your electronic devices should also be getting shut down I as like well. That. And so, you know, I think uh, that, that works pretty well for me. And uh, obviously it's ideal if you can stay away from those things in the evenings, uh, especially the last couple hours before you go to bed. But sometimes uh, we recognize that that's not always a possibility. Absolutely. And and one other thing I think is important to talk about, too, before we wrap it up is, you know, time of day for sleep is actually pretty critical, too. They've, they've found that if you don't get uh, at least some sleep before midnight, that you really don't get into that stage three, four deepest sleep. Uh, actually, there's some studies that are showing if you if you get if you can get some some sleep before um, one a.m. maybe one thirty at the latest, then you can still get into that stage three four sleep. But again, you have to be asleep at least a couple hours before then to to really get that. And so, trying to go to bed at the very latest, I think by eleven p.m. is a is a general rule of thumb. Uh, for most people. Otherwise, you're really not going to get into that really deep restorative sleep. And and I think part of that is really trying to adapt your body to a good circadian rhythm during the day, which means getting you know adequate light exposure uh, during the day, sunlight or even um, bright light therapy in, in the morning and making sure that your body's kind of set in that light and day cycle. And, you know, another thing that really speaks to that too is they've shown that even if people get enough sleep during the day, like they're, they're night shift workers, but they're up all night working, that they're much more prone to depression or other mental health and even physical health problems. And again, it just shows that it's not just important how much sleep we're getting, but time of day. Yeah, absolutely. So one other thing that um, I think I, we want our listeners to really be aware of that is, is that we have a great resource uh, and that is uh, our sleep hygiene handout. And so we want to make that available to our listeners. Uh, so if, if you go to the show notes, uh, we want to make that available uh, for you. And that goes through several components of good sleep hygiene or sleep habits that can optimize your sleep patterns. Well, thank you so much for listening with us today. We hope that you found this information valuable. And if you only take one thing away from today's show, remember this. If mental illness is a whole person problem, then it must have a whole person solution. I'm Jonathan Edens. I'm Dr. Daniel Bynus. And you've been listening to The, the Brain, Brain People, People Podcast. Podcast.
Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, find us on social media, or support us financially, visit thebrainpeoplepodcast.com. 